Good morning, Emmanuel. So great to be back home with you guys. Uh, this is my second home when I'm not in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, it's a it's not a, a position or a role for me. I really feel like I'm just coming to be with my brothers and sisters with family. Uh, Pastor Nate and Jody are so special and important to me. Uh, I haven't had a fight since I was in seventh grade, but I would fight somebody over Pastor Nate and Jody. Don't get it twisted. So I'm not going to tell you who won that fight in seventh grade. Somebody might step up to me. But uh, I am so glad to be here. Uh, when Pastor Nate reached out to me and told me about the series on the book of Exodus and uh, asked me about the assignment of Jethro. I said, I'm Jethro, man. That's what I do. That's who I am. So I want to let you know that Jethro is in the house this morning. We're going to talk about Jethro's visit. I want to just begin this message by, I'm going to mention some names, and I'm going to ask you what's the commonality with each of these. Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, Ford, Nixon, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Right, American presidents, but not just American presidents. During the time of their service in office, they were the most powerful person on the face of the earth, politically, representing the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Now, here are some other names that you may or may not be familiar with. Akhenaten, Tutankhamen, Amenhotep. Hashaput, Senefru, Sedi, Ramses, kings, pharaohs. They were Egyptian kings, which they call pharaohs. At the time of their reign, the most powerful men and women, there were a few women pharaohs on the face of the earth, and the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. See, pharaohs, much like our presidents, were symbolized by animals. In America, we use the American eagle as our symbol of strength and power because of the virtues and characteristics of the eagle. Well, the, the Egyptian pharaohs, they use a falcon. They use the bull or they use the sun because they believed that the pharaoh was a god, a small G-O-D. How I many you know we serve the big G-O-D, <laughs> the only true and living God? And because they believed that their pharaoh was a god, they believed that the pharaoh would never die. Even if their life ended here on the earth, the pharaoh was continuing to live. And so they would mummify their pharaohs and they would place them in a casket, but they would put everything that they thought the pharaoh would need to continue to reign and live on the other side of life. It was only a matter of time before thieves found out in the Valley of the Kings that there was a lot of loot that had been buried with these pharaohs. It kind of reminds me of a man who was getting ready to die and he called all of his friends together. And this man was very rich. He was a billionaire. And uh, he gave all of his friends a, an order. He says, I want each of you to go to my church and give your lives to Christ. And when I die, I have an envelope that I'm going to make sure that my lawyer gives to you. And it's going to be amount of money. I want you to know what it feels like to have the money in your hand. But you can't spend it. You have to place it back in the, ta in the casket at my funeral. So the man died and his first friend came and his lawyer gave him a check for $50,000. 
He looked at it and he cried. He had never seen $50,000 before. And I think he cried more when he had to put it back in the casket. <laughs> Next friend came and he got his money and it was $100,000 in cash. He had never held that amount of money in his hand before. And he cried and he put it back in the casket. The third friend came along and he had a million dollars. And he didn't cry. He took out his checkbook and wrote a check for a million dollars and put the check in the casket. <laughs> that was a smart man. Well, Pharaoh was like that. Believed that he could take his stuff with him. But he couldn't. Pharaoh had a leadership style that was symbolized by a couple of things. Chariots. See, pharaohs, they ruled by power. They ruled through military might, and their chariots was a sign of their strength. They would, they would release their chariots and horses on weaker nations, and they would just take possession of the property and of the people and whatever they wanted. They ruled by chains. Pharaohs demonstrated their, their rulership and their leadership by, by building projects, whether it was the Sphinx or the pyramids or, or, or supply cities, and they would enslave and enchain weaker nations to build these cities. You remember the Israelites? Then they also ruled by control. That's how Joseph got into Egypt. Pharaoh's control was so self-consuming that they would stop at nothing. There was nothing that was off limits. They would go to whatever means was necessary to maintain their power and control, even if it mean genocide of a nation. So it's no wonder that Pharaoh gave an issue and a decree that the Hebrews who were multiplying in numbers, that they were commanded to now throw their baby boys who were born into the Nile River and feed them to the crocodiles. Then we hear about Moses being born and his godly parents, Amrab and Jochebed, knowing the king's decree, defied it because they looked at their son and knew that there was a special purpose and call of God upon his life. And they hid the baby for three months until they could hide him no longer, prepared an ark ship for him and put him in it, sent Miriam, his oldest sister, to watch and see what would happen. And God brought Moses' ark right up to the shores of Pharaoh's own household, where Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out of the water, brought Moses up into the, in the house of Pharaoh. Moses grew up as an Egyptian. He was a qualified leader. And for 40 years, he spent his, his life learning the ways of the Egyptians. He learned the leadership of Pharaoh. When we are in an environment, that begins to saturate our conscience, begins to saturate our mind and our soul, and we become like the environment that we're in. And it was 40 years that Moses began to walk out in the same leadership style of Pharaoh, one of control. Here's an illustration of it in Acts chapter 7, verse 22 through 27. Moses was educated in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. 
The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was being mistreating, who was mistreating the other, pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? You see, Moses' own Jewish people rejected control. They rejected dominance. They rejected micromanagement. Moses thought that they would automatically uh, appreciate and adopt his leadership style. But they didn't what Moses didn't realize is that God's people, they needed a shepherd because they were like sheep. They didn't need a tyrant as if they were slaves. So Moses fled and lived for 40 years in the wilderness of the Midianites. And while Moses was there in the wilderness, God created a unique environment for Moses to unlearn the leadership style of Pharaoh and to begin to learn how to be a shepherd, a servant leader. You see, God created an apostolic mentoring environment for Moses in the wilderness. Now, the same thing is true for you and I. When God calls us and he calls all of us, we're all in ministry whether it's in the marketplace or it's in, a, in the ministry of a local church or if it's in a municipality or profit or for-profit, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is called to ministry. And God puts us in an environment to learn. For some of us, we had to learn the hard way and that apostolic mentoring environment might have been called the penitentiary. For others of us, it might have been school or it might have been the, the blessed uh, environment that two parents provided for us or a single mom provided. It might have been a rehabilitation center for us, but God puts us in environments where we learn to be mentored into servant leaders. And God used a unique man named Jethro to become an apostolic father for Moses. In Exodus chapter 2, when Pharaoh heard what Moses had done, he sought to slay Moses. See, Pharaoh was going to keep power and control, even if it meant killing Moses. And Moses knew that he, his deed of murder was found out, so he fled from Pharaoh, went to the land of Midian, sat down by a well. The Bible introduces us to Jethro. He was a priest king who had these seven daughters who were given charge of their father's sheep, and they were out trying to water these sheep at the well. But there was misogynation and, and uh, uh, an attitude where, where men didn't respect women, even back then, and these male shepherds refused to allow Jethro's daughter to water their sheep. Well, Moses, who knew how to fight, he'd raised in, as an Egyptian, he knew power and control, he came to their defense, and defeated the shepherds and allowed the seven daughters to water their flock. They finished watering their flock so fast and got back home to, to Jethro. He said, why did you finish so fast? Why are you home so soon? They said, well, an Egyptian came and helped us. Jethro said, well, where is he? Go and get him. Sure enough, they found Moses and they brought him in to Jethro. And the story fast forwards to say that Jethro became Moses' father-in-law by giving his own daughter Zipporah into marriage to Moses. Jethro became an apostolic father to Moses. Apostolic fathers, uh, like spiritual fathers, they desire something great for their children. They see something within their children and they come to activate, they come to impart those spiritual gifts and release those gifts so that they become even greater than what the father himself has experienced. 
It's no wonder because that's the nature of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus Christ himself, verse 11 says, he gave the apostles. The word apostle means a sent one. It's somebody who, who is sent to release and impart spiritual gifts and activate the body of Christ to walk in his greater purpose. He gave them apostles. He gave prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave the pastors. He gave the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. See, infants are immature. They can't take care of themselves. Then we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceit and scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In order for us to walk as these king priests, just like Jethro was, it requires an apostolic environment. It requires an activation by an apostolic father. And Jethro is here today for us to walk in this anointing. Because every one of us who's a follower of Christ needs to know that the spirit of the sovereign God is upon you. Turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking to you. It's upon you. The spirit of the sovereign God is upon you and he has anointed you to proclaim good news to the poor, to heal the broken heart, to set at liberty those who are captive, to release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. God's anointing never was intended to just rest upon the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They are called to equip, to activate, to release, to, to impart gifts that God has for every believer so that miracles, signs, and wonders go wherever you live, work, play, pray, and learn. It's not just for the house of God, but it's for everybody and it's for everywhere. Can we say amen and thank God for that? So Moses is in this apostolic mentoring environment. But before Moses can fully uh, be activated and be released, Moses had to learn some things. One of the first lessons we have to learn as well is the lesson of stewardship. See, stewardship is how do you take care of that which doesn't belong to you? How do you take care of that which somebody else, somebody else owns? Your body is not your own. Your marriage is not your own. Your children are not your own. Your possessions are not your own. Your job is not your own. The air that we breathe is not our own. Even that is lent to us from God. How are we stewarding those things? And Moses learned how to be a steward because Jethro delegated his sheep to Moses. See, we don't all just stop at the, start at the top, right? You got to start at the bottom. And if you're faithful with the small things, stewardship then leads to promotion. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And of course, those of you that read your Bibles, you know in Exodus chapter 3, while he was there tending the flock, 
being a faithful steward, that it's there that he encountered God in the burning bush. And God spoke to him and told him, Moses, it's time for you to walk in the greater calling and purpose. Go back to Egypt. Speak truth to power. Speak to the strongest and the most mightiest man on the face of the earth in the most powerful nation of the earth. And of course, most of us are like Moses. Who, me? <laughs> you got the wrong one, Lord, not me. Yes, you. Moses goes back in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 18, and he, he, he tells Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro says, go, I wish you well. See, apostolic fathers, they don't just uh, give us opportunities to learn stewardship, but they affirm, they see and they affirm and they release the call of God that's upon our lives. Jethro saw something in Moses that needed to be developed, but it also needed to be released. Apostolic fathers don't want you to just sit on your gift. Neither do they just want to sit on you. They're not about being the king of the hill, the top of the mountain. They're about multiplication and releasing sons and daughters in the earth. And in Exodus chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses, he heard of everything that God had done for Moses and for his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So between Exodus 4 and Exodus 18, these 14 chapters, of course, God did tremendous miracles and signs and, and exploits through Moses. And Jethro, the apostolic father, was watching and waiting in hope and in expectation then Moses would succeed. And he heard about everything that was done. And Jethro came to where Moses was. But he didn't just come alone. He brought Moses' wife and his two children with him. Now we're wondering, I'm scratching my head like, wait a minute. Now, why did his wife, the one that he received in marriage back in Exodus chapter 3, what happened that he, Moses would send her back home? Well, the reality is that Moses was a great leader. Yes. Moses had great courage. He could speak truth to power to Pharaoh. Yes. Moses could hear from God and, you know, lift up his staff and the Red Sea would part and take the staff and strike the rock. There were signs, wonders, and miracles that were evident in Moses' ministry, but the reality is that Moses was human also. He was a man. Ladies, don't shout me down, but... Moses might have been a great leader, but he was not a good husband. He was not the best father. And it took an apostolic father like Jethro to bridge the gap and reconcile Moses back to his family. So Jethro showed up with Zipporah and the two sons. Because I'm sure that Jethro thought, Listen, I gave her to you in marriage. She's your wife, not mine. <laughs> She's your responsibility. I'm not going to be responsible raising your kids for you. The reality is that there are a lot. I'm a grandparent myself. I have two grandkids. There are a lot of grandparents, and, and, and many of you are here today that you're carrying that responsibility of raising your grandchildren. I know you don't mind, but come on, it gets tiring sometimes. My granddaughter, she loves to play basketball, and I used to play a lot of basketball, but sometimes I just wake up in the morning and my knee is hurting, and I haven't done anything, but 
I just went to bed last night. My knee was straight in the bed. Why are you hurting? Right? My back is hurting. I thought the bed was the best thing for me to do, lay down, but I wake up and it's hurting. My granddaughter told me one day when I was, my job is to rebound the basketball and pass it back to her. And I'm running, trying to chase the ball. And she says, Grandpa, you don't run like you used to. I'm like, duh. I'm 63. She think I'm 36? It gets tiring. And so Jethro's like, uh-uh-uh, no, I'm not going to raise these kids. It's not my responsibility. So he reconciles. He, he restores the marriage. He brings the poor back. And when he comes back, he also looks at Moses' leadership. The 40 years that he had been in Egypt where he had absorbed the leadership style of Pharaoh of chains and control and chariots. And he realized that Moses had some blind spots. That Moses had adopted that, that leadership style of control. And so in Exodus 18, as Jethro comes back in verse 12, he brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron also came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, his father-in-law, in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking at a, a black Baptist church in my home city of Milwaukee. It was a very traditional church. It was their anniversary. And so, you know, anniversaries can be kind of stuffy and formal and you know, the pastors had their robes on and they had colors that everybody in the church was. A, if you have never been to a black church, you haven't lived. I'm telling you. I mean, we, we know how to do stuff formal. We pick colors and the choir marches in. And I mean, it was real formal. And, and so I left the pastor study and we walked out and we walked up on the pulpit and the choir was sitting behind us and they had on their robes and they're all colorful. And uh, there were three chairs on the podium, three seats. It was kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears. <laughs> Senior pastor sat on the right hand. Associate pastor sat on the left hand. They say, well, Bishop, this is your seat. It was like, I was like, I was, must have been daddy bear that day, man. My chair was... My chair was bigger than everybody else's. It was in the middle. I was like, yeah, I must be somebody. I'm sitting in the big seat today. And every day Moses came and he sat in the big seat. And he served as a judge for the people. They stood around him from morning to evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this? You are doing for the people. Why do you alone sit as judge with, while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, and I, I could just imagine Moses was happy to answer. He stuck his chest out a little bit and said, whenever the people have a dispute, they bring it to me. I'm the man. The people come to seek God's will from me. I hear the voice of God and they have an issue. They bring it to me and I take it to God and God tells me and I tell them. I decide between the parties and I inform them of God's decrees. I am the man of God. 
I'm the king of the hill, top of the mountain. And Moses' father-in-law replied in verse 17 and said, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. It's just a matter of time. You're going to burn out. And the work is too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. And if you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. We all need somebody to look at our blind spots. Moses didn't realize he had a blind spot of control. But he listened to his father-in-law. And he did everything that he said. And he chose capable men from all of Israel. He made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country without his daughter and grandkids. <laughs> That's just a, in parentheses. That's not in the Bible, but I'm a grandfather. I'm, I'm with you, grandparents. I'm with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord help you. Our job as grandparents should be to always say yes to our grandkids. They should love coming to our house because we say yes. We feed them sugar and cake and candy and then we send them home, right? And we see them next weekend or two weeks after that. Jethro went back to his own country. But he saw within Moses a blind spot that Moses, you're a control freak. You're a micromanager. You're, you're trying to do this all by yourself. You weren't designed to do that. You can't, God didn't make you that way. You're going to burn yourself out and you're not empowering the people. And his solution was, listen, you need to delegate leadership to people who have character. Character is who you are when nobody's watching you. Character is really who you are. People who have who have capacity, who have competency, people who are called by God, and also people who you're compatible with. As I learned a long time ago, I'm not hiring anybody that I don't like. <laughs> right? Why should, I, why should I pay you to aggravate me every day? We need to have some compatibility, right? He gave Moses that advice, and the resolution is, Moses, listen, and when Moses listened, he still could hear the voice of God. In fact, he heard it more clear. And I'm sure that Moses' wife said, what are you doing home so early? She, she said, hey, you know, since I listened to your father, life has been so much better. I don't have to work as hard. Happy wife, happy life. Maybe that's why 
she left in the first place. I don't know. I'm just saying. And just see Moses out there throwing the baseball with his two kids. I don't know if they had baseball back in those days, but your kids miss you. For those of you who are single, whether you're single, married, widow, or divorced, the strength of ministry comes from the strength of family, or if you're married, the strength of your marriage, the strength of your relationship with Christ. But Moses was a success publicly, but a failure privately. And his father-in-law gave him that advice and went back home. And the tragedy is that even still today, we see in every sector of society, whether it's in the, in the boardroom or in, in businesses, in, in government, in the classroom, in, in every sphere of leadership, we see control, micromanaging. Everything has to come through me. I have to have to be the one who's at the top of the hill. There's... I understand that you need to have that kind of leadership if we're in the military, right? Because the, the commanders and the generals, they see things that we don't see. And it's, it's without your opinion. Just do it. You've been given a command, soldier. <laughs> Just do what I tell you to do. But when it comes to the rest of life, inclusive leadership has proven to be the best type of leadership. It's where we get the, 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 the best uh, opinions and the best and the brightest ideas. It's where creativity and diversity flourishes and people's morale improves and their buy-in is great because we've included them in the process. But sadly, we still see examples of Moses and Pharaoh's style of leadership even in the local church. It started with Moses in the church in the wilderness as he was leading two million people. But even in the New Testament church in, in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, the early leaders adopted a leadership style of control because God gave them a command to start in Jerusalem but go to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. But they kept it in Jerusalem. In fact, Acts chapter 2, verse 43 tells us that the apostles performed nearly all of the miracles. It says in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The apostles did everything. Everybody looked to the apostles for wisdom. And it was only until Acts chapter 6, when crisis and the cries for justice arose, that the church at Jerusalem was literally forced to make a shift in its leadership style. Acts 6 and 1 says, In those days, when the number of the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, or the apostles, they gathered all the disciples together and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group, just like in Jethro's advice to Moses. Everybody was pleased. And they chose Stephen, 
a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas. I'm proud of myself mentioning these names. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it, all right? From Antioch, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's the role of the apostle, to recognize, to impart, and to release so there is a multiplication anointing upon whatever it is that we are called to lead. It doesn't die or stop with us. And Philip went on not just to wait on tables, but he went on to become an evangelist. Stephen went on to not just wait on tables, but to become the first martyr of the church and preach a great sermon in Acts chapter 7. These men literally worked themselves out of a job. There was a multiplication anointing that was transferred. And that's what Jethro has come to do today. Because the spirit of the sovereign God is upon you. He has anointed you where you live, in your neighborhood, where you work, where you play, where you work out, where you learn, where you pray. He's anointed you. And God will give every one of us a choice. He says, you can choose which style of leadership you want. Do you want Pharaoh's style? Or do you want Jesus' style? Do you want, do you want the church of Jerusalem style? Where everything flows through Peter, the one spokesperson, where people begin to choose, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Or do you want an Antioch style of church? The Spirit of God can speak and he can release a Paul and a Barnabas. And he can raise up diversity and, and there's an inclusive style of leadership and the church begins to multiply throughout Europe and throughout the rest of the world, which was the will of God in Acts 1 and 8. I believe that God doesn't, doesn't want us to have a micromanagement style. He says you have a choice. You can choose control or you can choose growth, but you can't get both. If you want control, it's going to be inborn. It's going to be ingrained, inbred. It's going to be stunted growth. It's going to all look the same. Monogamous. It's going to be the same race, the same gender, the same age if you want control. But if you want growth, look for people of calling and character and competency and capacity and capability. God says you can either have a kingdom culture where Jesus is Lord or you can have a culture of self where people sometimes can't see Jesus because of the personalities that we're worshiping. You know what I'm talking about? Not in this church, but there are some places and some churches where you go to where I'm not just talking about the chair it's nothing wrong with the chair, but make sure Jesus is sitting on the throne of our hearts. There's too many cults of self, and there needs to be a release of a kingdom culture. That when you leave Emmanuel Christian Center, whatever campus you might be on, that you are expanding the kingdom into every territory. When we adopt this, we're saying we're rejecting exchanging the cross for the couch. Because in this kingdom of cult, this, this cult of self, what ends up happening is that, is that leaders begin to cater to the voice of the people more than to the voice of God. 
No wonder why the apostle said, it's not right for us to wait upon tables, listening to the cries of the people. You take care of that. We need to tune into the voice of God. We need to hear God for you. So we can tell you what God says. Sure, bring the great disputes, the big disputes to us. But there's some things you can just handle on yourself. And the cross brings about maturity in the believer. The cross brings about a death to self and a, and a maturity of the nature and the character of Christ. And sadly, what we often see is that we've exchanged the cross for the couch. And therapy replaces deliverance. And there's nothing wrong with therapy. I have, a, I have a degree in psychology and a minor in counseling. And I think that every Christian, and especially some folks, don't look at nobody. They need Jesus and a good therapist. Just keep looking at me and don't be looking at nobody. He's talking about where is, where is he? Where is, no, I'm talking to you, talking to me. Nothing wrong with Jesus and a good therapist. But listen, sometimes we just need deliverance from ourselves so that we can become mature followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. So my question is, are you a doer or a developer? A doer. It's like Moses running around putting out this fire from this burning bush, running around putting this fire out, and there's a fire back here, just doing it all. The disciples who were eventually apostles, waiting on tables, receiving the offering, counting the money, putting it in the bank, doing the counseling, doing the visit, doing it all. And cries in crisis says, hey, wait a minute, you're neglecting us. The apostle says, no, we're not called to be doers. We're called to be developers. Bring us seven men of competency and character and calling and, care and, and, and compatibility we'll lay our hands upon them. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do at Emmanuel Christian Center in every location. Whether you're young or old, male or female, doesn't matter your nation of origin or your ethnicity, we've all been called into the ministry. There are people that are waiting for you to be released. And so Jethro has come today. Jethro has visited to give you this counsel. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to enter into a time of worship. And I want to preface this time of worship with this story, this closing story from the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Once Moses got this revelation, he didn't let it go. There was a time where Moses felt weary and worn out and felt like, oh God, this, this burden is too heavy for me. I didn't bear all these people, two million people. They're your people. You gave birth to them. I didn't call them out of Egypt, God, you did. And if you're going to put all this responsibility upon me, then just go ahead and kill me now. God said, no, I'm not going to kill you, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want you to get 70 men or women, because God's not a respecter person. We're all men. We're either womb man, woman, man with a womb, or male man, we're all men, all anointed and called by God. Get 70 of them and bring them out into the tent. And I'm going to take of the spirit that's upon you and I'm going to rest it upon them. Would you lift your hands with me right now in this moment of worship for a fresh impartation of the spirit of God. Lord, send the wind of your spirit 
like you did on the day of creation. Send the wind of your spirit like you did on the day of Pentecost. Send the wind of your spirit like you did in Moses' day and let it rest on us and activate and empower us to be your ambassadors, to be sent out from this place to wherever we live, work, worship, pray, and learn. In Jesus' name, let's continue to worship God. Thank you for joining us. We pray that you are encouraged and blessed by today's message. Check out emmanuelcc.org for faith resources, how to get plugged into community, or to join us live on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. We are so excited to see what God is going to do. The best is yet to come.